Call to Action, Episode 2. Representations of Data. Intro to the Podcasting Series. This is the second out of four podcasting episodes aiming to bring together a community of user experience practitioners, advocates for people with disabilities, and professionals interested in usability, accessibility, and user research methods. Those looking for ways to make a case for accessibility and quality assurance in design are encouraged to use this series of podcasts as a call to action for positive change in their design communities. Hello, and thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Zoe Marmara. What are the processes that the UX team must go through to provide the right context and transform individual data points into user expectations? This episode will explore virtual reality approaches to data visualization, storytelling, Edward Tafty, and Napoleon's Rosen campaign. What I have known from my experience in user research is this. There is an increasing demand for actionable insights. I hear it all the time. You see, successful data visualizations, like any other useful product, take into account the audience's expectations. How do we know what the audience expects? As user experience professionals, our job is to ask questions. We employ qualitative research methods, such as interviews, focus groups and surveys, to listen to what our audience expects our product or service to do. We mainly ask, listen, and then we write reports that contain factual and objective information that we have collected through research. And that sounds like a very easy job to do, right? Like any other thing that is of value, our users' expectations take some time to gather. It's a systematic process, really. Too often, the researcher will not carry out the report in a satisfactory manner. There's no failure in that. Usually, research objectives are not specific because everyone, except for the researcher, is in haste. Therefore, findings are incomplete, although you can't really tell because most people don't read the thing, and the product's full market potential is not achieved. Let me take this opportunity to remind you that you are listening to a podcast about user experience, I talk about user research, and I am about to tell you that user research is part of marketing analysis, and this is why sometimes Donald Norman frowns. Because when he talked about user experience in the first place, he was talking about an entirely different concept. But let's go back to our data visualization and its market potential. A data visualization has marketing potential and it requires market research. Someone has to analyze its potential customer base. Yes, I treated data visualization as a unique product. It's not part of a bigger something. It is the bigger something. It's a very unique product. It is a story of data and like research, it takes considerable time to ideate and develop. Developers usually have big, great ideas, and as highly creative individuals that they are, they can't resist the tendency to make them real. Look around you. 
there is a rise of creative activity seeking at work. We all crave to be creative. In the modern world, most of us consume ever-increasing amounts of everything, even creativity. So a developer is the first one to enjoy the blissful user experience of a data visualization that he or she has created. There is so much love and admiration given to data visualizations worldwide by geeky persons. Yes, make graphs, spread the love. In this concept of courtly love, the idolized graph will be published to attract the attention of much more lovers. If the data visualization says the right story to the right people, it will be loved. Like statistics, more than anything, we can create amazing stories that inform, engage, and influence. But developers are not storytellers. I'm sorry, guys. Developers usually don't write creative concepts. Marketing people do. Marketing people tell developers and designers what they should be building. Of course, marketing people are as good as their marketing research. If everyone is in haste and reports are incomplete, then, well, the love is one-sided. The marketing just never gets around to creating a solid concept and there's hardly a spark to fuel user engagement. What creative concepts aim for is nothing more than to fuel the spark of a product-client relationship so that this love will last forever. I will not name any brands, just think of your favorite soft drink that even Santa Claus loves so much. This particular story of Santa Claus and your favorite soft drink was created by a storyteller in 1931. His name was Archie Lee and he was a marketing executive at Darcy Advertising Agency. William C. Darcy, his boss, had signed Coca-Cola, his first client, in 1906. Because I like history so much, I have to tell you that the company enjoyed enormous successes, as much as failures, became DMB-NB, and was finally acquired by Publicis, one of the largest marketing companies in the world, in 2002. So far, we know that we need marketing. We do. But more than that, we need to understand the value of co-creation. We never create, we co-create. That's a far more joyful experience. I now have something to share which I find very important for all of us to grasp. And it is what my professor Neil Yoon Fahim Kennedy taught me. Our thoughts, feelings and behavior are influenced by the actual and imagined presence of others. All my thoughts are a co-creation. They are heavily influenced by the work and effort of hundreds of people who established their theories in marketing, management, psychology and sociology. And whenever I use any of the methods, it is because their work allows me to do so. Remember that whatever user experience, bad or good, you manage to produce, this is the product of a multidisciplinary team of the actual people that did the work and of all the people living or dead whose research you employed at your work. They all get the credit for the successes as well as the failures. Of course, 
Co-creation happens with all these actual and imagined persons, which are plenty, but it also happens with the intended audience. They are also co-creators because they provide their input. What can you ask users about data visualizations? There are audience considerations that inform design decisions, such as the socio-technical context of trust, which sounds like a very frightening thing, and questions such as what are the motivation and influential factors in the proposed design? Does the visualization provide accessible information? Questionnaires and checklists is something that we will discuss in the third episode of this series. Right now, I mean to talk a little bit about storytelling and data visualizations. Let's talk about Tafti. Who is Tafti? Edward Tafti is an American statistician, 76 years of age, and a pioneer of data visualization. When you think of data visualization, you think of Tafti and of Charles Joseph Minard. Minard was a civil engineer active in the 19th century. He is known for making a significant contribution in the field of information graphics, and we know him because Tafti made him popular with his book called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information in 2001. Minard is so dear in the sense that he so carefully crafted the story of Napoleon's disastrous losses during the Russian campaign in 1812. With precision and effectiveness, Miner designed a specific type of flow diagram in which the width of the army's path is shown proportionally to the army's size. The graphic explains the story behind the data. In June 1812, a large force of 422,000 soldiers crossed the Niman River in today's Belarus in an attempt to bring the Russian army to battle. As the French advanced and the Russian army fell back, destroying crops and burning villages, Napoleon's forces were dramatically reduced by starvation and privation. Finally, he and his troops of 100,000 men arrived in Moscow, but the town had been abandoned and burned to the ground by the Russians. The soldiers kept falling from hypothermia. Under the black flow of the map, which describes the retreat, Minard provides the corresponding failing temperatures during the Russian winter. The black line grows thinner and thinner, resulting in 10,000 men arriving back in the departing city of Kaunas at the end of Napoleon's campaign. Our main objective as makers of data visualization is to embed meaning to the complex relationships of variables, and Minard brilliantly accomplished that. Minard depicts a systemic field of interrelationships, the size of the army, the locations of battle, vectors of movement, temperature, and the passage of time. The map is multivariate and open. It is read in a linear way and has a clear intention to communicate the catastrophic loss of life. And when I say Minard depicted the catastrophic loss of life, this is what you immediately experience when viewing his map. And this is why I called him dear, because dear Minard 
manages to put sensitivity and emotion to a graph. Many graphic designers have tried to do the same, and some did it successfully. And it's a motivation factor, isn't it? Because when you care, it shows. When a person creates something with care, you can tell. Taft decides Minard's graphic as a narrative graphic of time and space, which illustrates how multivariate complexity can be subtly integrated into graphical architecture, integrated so gently and unobtrusively that viewers are hardly aware that they are looking into a world of four or five dimensions. There are five dimensions in Minas graph that include city, temperature, date on retreat, size and direction of army. However, the map is far from consistent because it is a closed system that incorporates only the facts related to the narrative theme. The fact is that around 75% of Napoleon's army perished on their way to Moscow by starvation and privation. So there are details that are deliberately undermined. All in all, the level of data detail and how they are depicted by the map's creator tells the story of the catastrophic campaign. What we learn from Maynard Data visualizations can be highly influential. Maynard's intention was to fuel the spark of an anti-war movement. And there is amazing potential to extract meaning from data and convey actionable insight. But do graphs incentivize these days? I'm not sure. I feel that to relate with anything in the 20th century, you have to become immersed because if we don't frame you to the experience, you will not be able to focus. Cognitively speaking, people are losing it. Your memory, attention, processing and sequencing are declining. It's the good surface intention, as Harari would put it, but let's not talk about politics. So, you have to be immersed into data. What a better way than to create a well-crafted narrative based on virtual reality? One of the biggest growth areas of VR technology has been in gaming, but VR has opened up so many other possibilities in education, the military, in fashion, in business, and in film. The list is endless. In scientific visualization, virtual reality is being increasingly used to express complex ideas and scientific concepts. We have seen visual models of the human body and complex datasets, and yes, we have seen complex datasets and large collections of numerical information, but we rarely understood any of it. When I see data visualizations and I don't understand them, I feel stupid. Wasn't I immersed in the story? Didn't I pay enough attention? Do I lack the knowledge of statistics? Was there even a story to begin with? First, let's agree to call the team of people involved in the making of data visualizations a new name. Let's call them makers. 
makers who are responsible for making effective and informative 3D visualizations. In that sense, if I don't understand the data, it's because my maker didn't wish for me to do so. Let's see what conceptual tools makers have to work with to provide me with a meaningful something in VR specifically. This part is about the presence. In VR, physical representations can be observed in a 360-degree canvas, while users are offered a simple yet natural interaction style using their headsets. This is called having a presence. A presence is defined as a person's subjective sensation of being in a virtual environment. VR aspires to replicate and extend much of this subjective sensation through the canvas, which is a key narrative element that has the potential to make storytelling truly immersive. The canvas can be used to immerse users in an environment where they can build data depictions to replicate physical objects, organize data spatially and inspect it from different angles, much like in the physical world. However, unlike physical visualizations, users are able to dynamically alter and manipulate data representations in ways that are not currently possible in the physical world, for instance, by filtering or zooming the depicted data. To aid the users in establishing a presence, a narrative is constructed to lead them towards the actions they need to take by making clever use of the 360-degree canvas and the immersive space. So far, the more questions we make, the more clever use of our tools we make. So there are more questions to ask yourselves. How do we prompt users to engage with specific elements and interact with the environment in a natural and intuitive manner? How do we guide users through space and time using a non-linear format? How aspects of immersion and stimuli should be used to help users perceive the digital environment as real and engaging? Do the user's device support the relation and refresh rate requirements to establish presence? There are stimuli, sight, sound, touch, smell and taste to employ, to put forward, aiming to construct meaning out of data. But think that Maynard only used the black and the red line to convey a meaning. Can you see the challenge for the UX teams? With today's technology, you have way too many tools to work with. If you try to incorporate all of them to your work, you are in danger of losing focus of your objectives. Most probably you will end up troubleshooting and trying to make everything work together. To perform a song, you need a band. To perform a symphony, you need a symphony orchestra. There are four to five people in a band, 12 people in a big band, and a hundred people in a symphony orchestra. So if your product is not the size of a symphony, don't try to use a hundred different technologies because they are out there and they are nice to have. 
Now I'll just go grab an animal cracker and forget all about this analogy. I like analogies because they indicate the similarities in things. Analogical reasoning is ubiquitous in human cognition and it is important for creativity, as well as scientific research. And what's more important is presence, not the VR presence that we talked about earlier, but the presence of a team. Finally, this is the end of this podcast. I am Zoe Marmara, and I encourage you to think of your role and responsibilities in the UX design team and of the benefits you can bring as an individual who strives to design quality products. I hope this podcast has inspired you to pursue the subject matter further. The next podcast of the Call to Action series will celebrate Halloween with questionnaires, checklists, heuristics, and other evil user experience inspection methods. Thank you, sincerely, for your time.